Today's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by Raycon. Right now, Creepscast listeners can get 15% off the Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash mrcreeps. Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing amazing. What a wonderful time of year it is. I really hope this week's stories put you in that spooky Halloween mood. Let us begin and drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. There's a house in the forest with big French windows. If you walk by, ignore the screams. Written by, signed, styled, delivered. I couldn't believe my luck. As I looked out at the beautiful forest framed by the big glass windows, I put my feet up on the sofa and I sighed contently. I've couch surfed a couple dozen times and I've had mostly great experiences. But this place, this place it took the cake. It's usually considered pretty good if you can get a room to yourself when you're couch surfing. I've slept in many living rooms, bunked with other couch surfers in tiny rooms, and on a few occasions, camped out on balconies. Hence, I came into this place without any expectations, prepared to take on whatever was offered. The host, Colum, offered me the entire top floor. It was perched on a beautiful three-storied house, which was nestled in a small clearing at the edge of a forest. It took a while to get to the place. Hitchhiking took me on many detours before I was within walking distance, but it was worth it. So worth it. I sipped my hot chocolate happily, counting my blessings at having landed at such a cushy couch surfing gig. All the host had requested in exchange for lodging was for me to hang out with him for dinner. Usually, hosts would request for guests to contribute something that could expand their horizons. For example, guests could teach them a foreign language or cook them a cultural dish, or bring over some knickknacks from their hometown, etc. Hanging out with him for dinner seemed easy enough. He came off pretty decent in his profile, and he had many positive reviews from past couchsurfers. I savored the creamy sweetness of the last drops of hot chocolate, and then placed the mug down on the coffee table. Without warning, a lazy wave of drowsiness washed over me. I was wiped, I realized. I had been propped up by the excitement of exploring a new place, checking out the beautiful new accommodations that I had for the next few nights. Now that I was settled in, the tendrils of sleep crept swiftly over me. I had a good few hours to rest before dinner. I happily tucked myself into the inner corner of the bed, marveling at the perfect balance it held between firmness and softness. It was going to be a good nap. I awoke with a kink in my back. I needed the not lose, assuming that I must have slept in a wrong posture. On the bright side, I could smell dinner. I followed the delicious wafts down the stairs. And as I turned the corner of the last flight of steps, the sight that came into view warmed the impoverished cockles of my heart. 
I had been trying to stretch my travel budget as far as it would go. So the meals that I had had over the past week had consisted mainly of nearly expired sandwiches and discount, man biscuits. What lay on the dining table was a feast, a feast fit for a king or three. The various carbs, dips, platters, and mains spilled all across the oak surface. And best of all, they were all vegetarian. I know, I know. I could eat everything there. My eyes actually prickled with tears as I realized the amount of effort and consideration my host had put in. Very few people remember my dietary preferences, which was fine with me, since there's no reason to put others out for my own choices. But this meal, it looked as if he had scrolled through my couch surfing profile and pictures to pick out the best dishes for me. And there was wine. Lots of wine. I briefly wondered how Colum could afford all these. The food, the house, the elegant furnishings. He looked barely older than 40. But I didn't ask. I figured he was one of those millionaire by 30 type of guys. Or it was family money. It wasn't my business to probe. Dinner lasted three hours, interspersed with bouts of my heartfelt gratitude. Callum turned out to be a great conversationalist. The conversation flowed naturally. And when it came time for sleep, he seemed reluctant for me to leave. He must have been lonely in this big house. I went to bed stuffed and epically contented. I stretched out under the covers and quickly fell asleep. I wasn't sure what time it was that I woke up. It was pitch black outside. I shifted about in discomfort. There is something hard pressing against my back. I felt the mattress, and my fingers slid over a bump in the bedding. Annoyed and puzzled, I dragged myself over to the other side of the bed. Smooth and comfortable. I shut my eyes and dozed off. I woke up again sometime later. My back was aching. I felt about beneath me, and once again, there was a big bump in the bedding. In the fog of sleep, my mind took a while to make sense of things. I was still sleeping on the other side of the bed. I hadn't shifted back to the side with the bombs. Was my weight shifting the bedding about? Puzzled, I started to really press down on the bomb, feel about it, and then an icicle of fear seared through my chest. The bump felt like the shape of a face. I pulled back in horror. This can't be, I thought. I'm imagining things. I'm in a strange place in the dark and my mind is playing tricks on me. I forced down my fear, compressing it into a tiny, manageable size. Then I took a deep breath and pressed down at the bump again. Under the tight pressure, the shape of the bump began to show through the surface. A smooth bump. A curve here, another bump there. This time, there was no holding back the fear. My liquid froze in my veins. The shape of a face pressed clear against the bedsheet. A scream sprung up within me, but got caught in my throat. I was immobile, locked in my terror, hands still pressing down about the shape of the face. 
and then the face moved. That broke me free of my paralysis. The scream that was building within erupted into the night, and I clambered backwards, still screaming, eyes fixed on the bump. I fell off the bed but immediately picked myself up, legs already pumping. I flung the door open and half ran, half tripped my way down the stairs. The column shot into view, eyes wide with shock. I realized that he must have fallen asleep in the living room on the first floor. What's happening? Are you okay? I realized I was still screaming. I stopped abruptly and started sobbing instead. There's, there's a face, a face upstairs. Column looked at me, amazement appearing into the shock on his face. I swear there's a face, in the bed, in the mattress. And Column continued to look gobsmacked. And then he reached forward to take my arm and led me to the sofa. He was quiet for a long time, just watching as I wept the fear out of my system. When the tears finally stopped, I looked up to see bewilderment on his face. You, you can see her too, he said, his tone laced with wonderment. Wait, what? My eyes widened. You can see her, my sister. I briefly considered running out into the night, sans backpack and necessities, but I made myself stay in my seat. What do you mean, your sister? A somber gloom settled on his face. His eyes hardened. What you saw the face. It belongs to my sister. He sounded guarded, defensive. I didn't know what to say. He looked at me for a moment and then sighed. His expression softening. I guess I'll have to tell you. I should tell you. It's been so long. So many years of anguish. After a pause, he continued. I killed my sister. Now I was really tempted to go running into the night. Phone wallet, everything, forget about it. Instead, I sat stiffly on the sofa. Muscles tensed and ready to flee. It was many years ago. She, she was evil. She did horrible things to me. Often too. And she also did it to others. I had to stop her. Despite myself, I found myself intrigued. She was born with these um, abilities. She could do things to my mind. She, she would do bad things to me. Sometimes I would wake up in the middle of the night, a crushing weight on my chest, a body paralyzed, and there she would be, standing in the doorway just looking at me. Once I had a buddy over, I had left the house for less than a half an hour to get us all some beers and when I returned, he was crushed under a shelf, shin shattered and poking out of his skin. It could have been an accident except the shelf had been bolted onto the wall. I sat there for the next hour as these stories of his past unfolded, her screaming in his mind until he almost went mad, him coming to unrealizing that he had been carving words into himself, him seeing ants crawling under his skin and scratching streaks into his skin. One night, I had had enough. I knew that she had power, so I had to be very careful. I'm just glad she didn't have the mind-reading abilities. 
I wasn't even thinking about running anymore. I was fascinated. And I was also starting to feel sorry for him. More so than for his sister. That night, she had just inserted a nightmare into my head. Again, I knew that it was her because at the end of the nightmare, her face appeared. She was smirking. And when I woke up, there she was in the doorway, smirking. It was the last straw. Long story short, I made a plan. My sister loves wine and I loved wine. So I spiked one of the bottles. When my sister finally got to that bottle, she passed out and didn't wake up. He cleared his throat. And then I got rid of her. He darted a nervous look at me. I kept my face expressionless. But then I couldn't find a way to get rid of her out of the house without being seen by the living help, who lived in the converted shed in the garden. I fired her soon after though. I needed a way to get my sister's body out of the house without being seen. So I put her in the mattress and I sewed it back up. I flinched. That explained a lot. I spilled some wine on it as an excuse to get rid of the mattress and I dragged it out to dispose of it. I drove to another part of the forest and I buried it somewhere in there. But somehow, her spirit stayed. She's been here and she's been tormenting me for the past decade. Just pacing about the house, showing up at random places. She can't get into the living room, but that's it. It's my only safe space. She can even follow me out of the house. She's weaker in death and she can't control me. Can't make things happen, not anymore. But her presence. And sometimes, she still succeeds in inserting terrifying images into my head. That's why I've been hosting couch surfers. I need the company. The distraction. I need company to keep me sane. He looked at me anxiously. Then a curious wonder seeped into his eyes. But no one else has been able to see her. No one but you. Wow, yay, lucky me, I thought. You're special. I think you're God sent to help me end this once and for all. I reconsidered running again. It sounded like he had done what he thought he had to do. He did it to protect himself and others, and I could understand that. I didn't agree with how he did it, but I couldn't say for sure. If I had been in his shoes, living in fear my whole life, that I would have done anything different. I didn't think that he was an evil man. But now, he was asking for my help to get rid of a vengeful ghost that was pushing things too far. I'm not an exorcist, I'm nobody, I'm just a traveler, I stammered. I just need you to say a few words, and I'll settle the rest. I looked at him in confusion. Say a few words, settle the rest. He looked thoughtful for a few moments, and then he spoke. Well, I guess I would best tell you, and there's no point in hiding it. I've been researching for years on how to get rid of her, and I finally found something worth pursuing. He walked over to the old teak cupboard and pulled out a box. He opened it. In it were a few candles, a jar of what seemed like black paint, a couple of trinkets, and a piece of paper. 
I read something this lady posted on an obscure website. Her mother and her are practitioners of arcane magic, and they had this way to bind a soul to the place. You just need to use this jar of, well, she didn't say exactly what it was, some type of mixture. You use it to paint some symbols on the floor of the house and place these other objects in certain positions. He saw my raised eyebrow. You might not believe it, but it's true. I went to find the lady. I found them and followed them to one of their jobs. They were helping someone deal with a lingering spirit in the house. I couldn't see the ghost, but I felt it. They performed the ritual, chanted the name of the spirit, and then I felt it whoosh by me. Heard a faint shriek, and suddenly, there was a dark shadow within the symbol that she had drawn. It was real. Real. I checked in with the person who had hired them a few months later. He told me that he had moved out, and he hadn't been bothered by the spirit since. I know too because once I placed this box in the cupboard here, she couldn't get near me. She couldn't even enter the living room. I couldn't wrap my mind around it. Implausible story, twisted fairy tale aside, whether I believe you or not, why would you need me? You have the box of things that they gave you. Why don't you do it yourself? I was slowly inching towards the door as I spoke. He was beginning to sound unhinged. But at a subconscious level, I believed him. There was something undeniable in his eyes and the way that he told of the story. At the very least, he believed his words to be the truth. I need two people for the ritual. Two people who can both see her. That was the requirement. That's why the lady and her mother had to work together. I could see where this was going, but I wasn't helping no way. Even if I didn't believe in it, I wasn't about to humor him by dabbling in the dark arts. I am deep down a really superstitious person, and I was terrified of those things. Of the face upstairs. Are you sure that you were never in the spiritual field? He asked. It doesn't make sense that you can see her too. I've met so many people, hosted so many couch surfers, and none of them could ever detect her, much less see her the way that you did. What were you doing before you quit and took up traveling? I'm definitely not in the spiritual field. Like I said, I'm a superstitious person. I wouldn't go anywhere within a thousand leagues of that field. I was a psychologist before I quit. You were a psychologist. Did you maybe do more alternative therapies, like hypnotism? No, definitely not, and to be honest, I quit because weird stuff kept happening to me. I quit to clear my head, to stay as far away from weird, supernatural things as I could. So no, I'm not going to help you. Please. He grabbed my shoulders and stared intensely into my eyes. His eyes brimmed with desperation and pain. Unwillingly, I felt myself soften. I'm terrified of these things, okay? I'm not brave. I want to help you, but I really don't think I can. Take what you've experienced tonight and multiply it by tenfold. Then imagine living through it every single moment, every hour of your life for the next ten years. I couldn't picture it. The intense horror, the crippling fear, stretching out into years.
It was cruel to leave him to his fate. I regretted it even as I spoke. Okay, I'll help you, but we try it just once and then we're done, alright? Thank you, thank you. Oh God, you're my savior. Thank you. He wept in relief. But I need your phone. Mine's in the bedroom and no way I'm going up there. I need to let my people know where I am in case something goes wrong. I didn't mention that one of the things I thought would go wrong was him killing me to keep his crime quiet. He nodded and passed me his phone. I excused myself as he set up the ritual stuff and went to the edge of the living room, not stepping outside. I sent out a few messages and emails detailing my location and Column's details, and then I gasped and dropped the phone in shock. She was right in front of me staring, a dark silhouette, a shadow with a face, and then images flooded my brain. Column, much younger, choking me out and then resuscitating me. Column laughing as I gasped air into my lungs, and then doing it again. Column getting rid of my pet hamster. Column's friend taking advantage of me. Me getting free and sending the shelf crashing down on him. Column firing shots into an older couple in one of the bedrooms. Column calling the police to report a burglary attempt gone wrong and that they had shot his parents. Column threatening to get rid of me if I reported him, dragging me out of the bedroom as I screamed and screamed, tears pouring down my cheeks. Column at the funeral, fake crying, and then flashing me a cold smile when he caught me staring. Column breaking my arm with a door slam. That was the last image before I woke up, to Column shaking me. I nearly screamed when I saw his face. So similar was it to the image of him standing over me after resuscitating me. I don't know how I did it, but I kept a straight face. It was like every emotion within me was gone. I felt nothing but an unnatural calm and a sudden clear focus. I could not let him know what I knew. It was his sister's memories. She had inserted her memories in my head to explain her side of the story, why she had done the things she had. A plaster look of confusion was on my face. What happened? You fainted, you just fell to the floor. I faked a look of realization, followed by horror. I saw her. She appeared before me. I must have passed out from the shock. She can't get you anymore. Soon, she can't. Come on, we need to stop her. Permanently. He gestured to the odd symbols that he had written on the floor. All you need is to stand here. He marked a spot on the floor and read the following. He passed me the piece of paper from the box. The words on the paper were unrecognizable, but he had written the English phonetic equivalents below. It was a strange tongue indeed, but one word stood out. Ava? I asked. Yeah, that's her name. We need to chant her name together and she would be bound to the space. Forever, I could move house and be free of her. Forever. Well, alright then, let's do this. Get it over with. I stood in the spot that he indicated and watched as Column started the ritual. He was trembling with excitement and anticipation. 
proudly imagining a life free from his sister's wrath. He drew odd symbols in the air, making strange gestures, all the while chanting aloud words that I had never heard before her, words that brought a chill down my spine. Ava appeared at the periphery of the room, unnoticed by Callum. She was trying to get closer but couldn't. I looked straight at her and then nodded, hoping that she could somehow grasp my intention. Callum reached the peak of his performance and gestured at me to read from the paper. I painstakingly pronounced each word, and then paused as he held out a palm to me, just before I reached the last word. We looked each other in the eyes and in perfect timing, we said the last word. Ava, he said. Callum, I said. Callum, I heard whispered from the dark figure at the edge of the room. Shock and confusion bloomed on Callum's face. It looked almost comical, juxtaposed against the arcane backdrop and the dark silhouette hovering behind him. And then the confusion on his face crumbled into anger. You, what have you done? He lunged at me and I ducked, scuttling out of the way. I turned back, half in fear, half in anticipation, and he leapt toward me. I flinched, but then he thudded into something invisible and fell back on the floor. He looked bewildered for a second and then his face contorted into fear and horror. I spent the next five minutes just watching as he slammed again and again into the invisible barrier about him, cursing, weeping, screaming, begging. I couldn't bear to watch anymore. I turned away and then before my eyes a beautiful young lady appeared. Ava now looked perfectly normal and seemed almost alive, except for the fact that I could see through her. She looked like the classic illustration of a ghost, of a friendly ghost at least, for she was smiling, an exquisite, mesmerizing smile, which held such warmth and gratitude that my heart ached. Thank you, she whispered. She reached out her hand and I reached out to touch it and watched entranced as she dissolved into the ether. Friggin' fairy tale indeed. I spoke aloud in wonder. I felt a strange, beautific sense of peace. I walked up the steps and I packed my stuff, still in a daze. I came back down, backpack slung on my shoulders. In my peculiar, blissful trance, I didn't even notice him yelling anymore. I was filled with an extraordinary pride and happiness for what I had done for Ava. I walked out into the night, not turning to look at Callum, whom I vaguely registered to still be yelling at me. No, please, she got to you too. Come back, please. A momentary twinge of doubt bubbled up, and then I closed the heavy wooden door, muffling his screams. The bubble popped. I breathed in the fresh night air and began my walk to the main road. Before we get into the next story, I just wanted to take a moment to talk about today's sponsor, Raycon. There is so much going on in the world, whether it's stuff you're excited about like Halloween right around the corner, or stuff you would rather not think about like that big test you've got coming up but you can't always control the vibes out there. But you can always control the vibes in your head, 
With a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ears. I've been using Raycon earbuds for a long while now, and these things are legitimate. And the new everyday earbuds look, feel, and sound better than ever. I use them every day, whether it's to pump myself up for a workout or to wind down after a long day. Raycons have single-handedly reshaped the way that I view earbuds. They sound amazing, they look slick, and they're more comfortable than any other pair of buds that I've tried. One of my favorite features of the new everyday earbuds has to be the sound profiles that you can adjust to make sure everything you're listening to sounds its best with just the right amount of bass. I use pure mode for binging podcasts, balance mode for my rock or heavy metal, and bass mode when listening to hip-hop. The versatility is amazing and it makes everything sound crisp and clear. Right now, Creepscast listeners can get 15% off the Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash mrcreeps. That's buyraycon.com slash mrcreeps to save 15% on your Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash mrcreeps. What if the devil's greatest trick was convincing us that the Bible was the word of God? Written by Keep It Realish. The clock on my dash reads 4.30 a.m. The darkness outside of my headlights is so thick that I can't see anything to the left or right of me. There isn't a star in the sky and the moon is eerily absent. The phone call I received last night assured me though that the church in Havens Creek is nice and the congregation was wonderful. I wanted to get there early get the lay of the land and put my own little flair to the place. I had been driving for some time when I finally came up on my turn for the church. I pulled into the parking lot and what my high beams fell on took my breath away. A large, beautiful white church with long columns, a bright red double door, and beautifully stained glass windows with depictions of our Lord and Savior. I stepped out of the car Turning off the headlights and the night was heavy again. Outside of the interior lights of the church and these solar-powered lights lining the path to the door, I could see nothing. I'll admit, I felt a bit unsettled, but my mentor, Father Reynard, had me come here as a guest pastor, and I was not going to let him down. I made my way up the stairs and into the church, the inside was even more glorious than outside. Fifty yards of pews lined down both sides and a gold-lined red carpet from the door to the pulpit. Getting the full view of the stained glass, I see our Lord and Savior, the cross, our Virgin Mary, cherubs with wings, and the angels up above. Just being inside of this place filled my heart with love. I made my way down the gold-aligned carpet and to the first pew. I took a seat to relax and just take it all in. Directly next to me was a book that I had come to know very well over my 40 years of life. The Bible. I picked up the very pristine book and sat it in my lap with my hands folded, resting on top of it and took a deep breath. At this point... 
I was just trying to take it all in. When I heard the front door open, the person's feet sounded hard off of the floor with each step, which was strange seeing as the way up was thickly carpeted. Each step drew nearer and nearer until the man finally came into view. He was extremely handsome and well-dressed. A black suit, jacket, and pants, with a red vest and black tie with red lacy inlays. The man had long blonde hair pulled back out of his face, and an air of authority about him that I just couldn't place. The man walked past me and removed a chair from the rack and walked back toward me. He sat the chair directly in front of me, sat down and crossed one leg over the other. We both stared at each other in silence for a short time. And just as I was about to speak up, he said, Forgive me, father, for I have sinned. His voice rolled out like honey, sweet yet sinister. I stared back at him. This isn't how we usually do things in my church, I thought to myself. But I am a guest in this house, so I won't push. What is your name, my child? I asked the man sitting in front of me. He cocked his head to the side and smiled. You can call me Sam, father. He held out the word so I knew it was a question. Ah, I replied. Salazar. Father Marcelo Salazar. He gave a slight smile and his bright blue eyes shone vibrantly. It's very nice to meet you, Father Salazar. As I said before, my name is Sam, and it would be greatly appreciated if you could assist me. I have sinned, and I fear I may wind up in hell. I shook my head softly. Oh, my child, do not worry. Our Father is a forgiving God. Please tell me of your burden so I may absolve you of your sins. Sam adjusted in his seat and then uncrossed his legs and crossed them the other way. I drink to excess and then judge others in church when they admit to doing the same. I nodded. Well, my child, I said. Sam quickly cut me off and continued. When I was married, I would have my wife stay at her mother's when she was on her period. I looked at him, as I tried to assure him that the Bible speaks of it being a time of uncleanliness. Sam quickly cut me off again. I sent my son off to a conversion camp when he came out to me. I didn't respond this time and he continued. I raised my hand to my wife if she tried to leave the house in anything other than modest clothing. I wanted my wife to be modest but also received less than modest photographs from my 19-year-old babysitter, Brittany. My eyes widened and I stood up from the pew that I was sitting in. I stepped around the side and began to back away down the aisle towards the door. His soft look hardened in an instant. His bright blue eyes went from soft to dangerous. What's wrong, father? He spat at me. You look awful. 
This man was speaking my life back to me. Who are you and what do you want? My hands and voice were both shaking. I was backing up steadily and Sam was just staring at me. We were far enough apart that if I turned for the door, I should be right there. I turned to look over my shoulder at the door, and when I turned back, I was in the front of the church again, face to face with Sam. My eyes widened. What is this? What is going on? I looked around and up at the ceiling. All of these stained glass depictions were staring at me, and they looked angry. What does it look like, father? Sam said. You're being judged. I looked around frantically. Judged? Are you God? I immediately dropped my knees and I bowed my head. I heard Sam scoff. God, he laughed. You believe a man who led a life such as yours would be judged by my father? I raised my head and stared up at him. Your father? I was confused. I ran through my knowledge of scripture as fast as I could and it came to me. I looked deep into his eyes and said the only thing that I could think of. Samuel. The man smiled a big, toothy grin. I stared in horror. I'm dead. Sam winked at me. I applaud you, Marcelo. It takes most of you so much longer to come to that conclusion. Wait, no, this can't be. I stammered. The devil himself. Lucifer. I may not have been the greatest man during life, but I followed the Bible as close as I could. I kept my wife in modest clothing, sent her away during her time of uncleanness, and I tried to have my son reborn in the eyes of the Lord. I did falter in my marriage a bit, but how has that earned me an audience with the devil? Sam let out a long and deep laugh. You know, my dear priest, he said, some say that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. But I assure you, I have done no such thing. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled, dear priest, is convincing the world that the Bible is the word of God. I stared at him, mouth agape, and my mind running over time. What do you mean, Sam? I felt on the verge of tears. I mean, I wrote the book that you people flock to. You see, my dear priest, many, many, many years ago, my father created humanity. He loved you with all of his heart and swore that humanity would be perfect. I assured him that no creature with free will would ever be so, but he assured me of the contrary. And for the first time in his long life, the devil struck a deal with none other than God himself. I told him that I would add but one thing to this world that would prove the downfall of humanity. And if they proved unfit, 
he would see me as his right hand. He assured me that it wasn't possible, that humanity was pure and perfect. Now, that book has existed in many forms depending on who holds it, but I wrote them all. I never appeared to Adam and Eve as a snake, but a book bound in snakeskin did. I told them of the beauty that lay outside, the glory, the happiness. It spoke of just eating that fruit and experiencing it all. Then, as the first bite was taken, I had won. My father was furious. My brother was bloodthirsty. So began a war in heaven and my fall from grace. I stared at this man, this being, as he turned everything I thought I knew upside down. Sam began again. Did you not stop and think as to why your loving, malevolent God would have bears turned on children? Why he would destroy cities full of people and holy fire, or flood the world committing genocide? I stared at him. Because, I said, God's wrath is terrible, but his love is infinite. It was for the greater good so humanity could be reborn. Sam spoke up. Uh, no, not quite. Just a little smoke and mirrors on my end to put the fear of God in humanity, you know. Sam tilted his head back and laughed again. You people use this book to mask your hate, not knowing that one day your undying soul will land right here on my doorstep. Since humanity's initial birth, I haven't persuaded a single soul to do anything. I haven't had to. That whole, the devil made me do it, is purely an excuse. The things I wrote made it normal for people to hear voices about going at their children. Oh, it's just God's will. Nope, hi, sorry again. That's mental illness. Sam looked at me serious and spoke again. Do you believe God makes mistakes? I stood and faced him, headstrong in my conviction. No, I do not, I said, my voice no longer shaking. He stepped forward almost nose to nose. Then why is it, my dear priest, that you tried to change one of God's creations because it didn't fit your narrative? I took an involuntary step back as he continued. I wrote that book with the idea in mind that hypocrisy would surge. It's laden with enough truth and love to lead the stupid astray. My father loves all life, all things, no matter color or creed. The part about punishing those who commit sins, it's all me. You hypocrites line my doorstep like lambs ready to be cooked. That love you feel well up inside when you tell someone that they will burn for who they love, or for living their life not according to your broken vision of an almighty God. It is not love at all, but your soul's acceptance of your truly wicked nature. I clutched the Bible to my chest and just shook my head. No, you are the father of lies. None of this is true. Sam smiled again. Is that what you believe, my dear priest? 
If so, have a look at the book you have coveted all your life. I pulled the Bible away from my chest and looked down at it. A snakeskin cover with a six-winged angel emblazoned on the cover. Sam seemed to stare into my soul. This, my dear priest, is the book that Eve held in her hands when she decided to take that first bite. I opened the book to a language that I had never seen before. Sam looked at me quizzically and turned his head to the side. Ah, uh, he said, my apologies. You can't read a notion. He waved his hand and the book glowed white hot. I dropped it immediately and took another step back. I couldn't understand this. If what he was saying was true, my entire life had been a lie. But wait, hold on. What about before the birth of Jesus Christ? Before Christianity? I stammered. Ah, you will find my handiwork in the hieroglyphics, in the halls of ancient Rome, or the diary of Julius Caesar. I had heard enough. I couldn't take any more. Tears openly fell down my cheeks. Now for my questions, my dear priest. How does it feel knowing that I robbed you of all earthly desire, only to have your soul remain in hell for eternity? I couldn't answer him. I couldn't even form clear sentences in my head. How does it feel knowing that the wife you detested so much took your son, denounced your wicked ways, and will both thrive for eternity in my father's kingdom? I felt his hand touch my shoulder, and it burned like nothing I've ever felt before. I screamed out in agony. As for my final question... This one won't be directed at you, my dear priest, but for our little eavesdropper here. So tell me, my dear reader, when was the last time you went to church? Don't Break Down on Old Route 33 Written by Glock Socks County calling Unit 4. My radio chirped. 4, I responded. Unit 4, respond code to a one-car motor vehicle accident. Old route 33 in the area of mile marker 44. Caller states that he had a deer. Vehicle inoperable. I sat and put down my phone. Putting my Chevy Tahoe in gear and gently pulling out of the parking lot I was comfortably sitting in. Unit 4 copies are responding. I said into the radio, putting it back in its holder. Roger, Unit 4. Time of dispatch, 2.39. Working third shift had its perks. Slow nights and not much to do, especially in such a rural county here in Montana, where the only crime seemed to be boredom. Having been born and raised here, I knew this area like the back of my hand. I could navigate it in the dark, heck, blindfolded, and I could tell you exactly where I was solely from the ground that I was standing on. Not much really happened of note here. The people kept to themselves. They were friendly, humble, and kind. Some people worked in the city close by, but most worked on their farms. They were hunters, homebodies, 
people who preferred their own solitude rather than the hustle and bustle of bigger cities and towns. The county that I worked in as a deputy sheriff was large. So large, in fact, that it took over an hour just to get from one side of my patrol route to the other. It didn't bother me. And since most people here owned firearms, break-ins and property crimes were seldom. Our job was mostly to wrangle up the drunks at closing time and chase the cows that always seemed to wander out of their pastures. Tonight seemed to be no different. A passing motorist hit a deer. It's quite common, really, especially with the large amount of space between houses and people. Animals pretty much had free roam in this place. But I had come to learn quickly. Tonight wasn't like most nights. Tonight would show me that solitude, while it often brings peace, can also bring horrors untold. The red and blue lights of my Tahoe pierced through the moonlit sky, while the terrain changed from asphalt to gravel and to dirt. Old Route 33 was never paved. The county maintained it but decided to keep the tradition of dirt, same as how our settlers had traveled back in the day. The bumpy road shuffled me in my seat, making me groan with each bump. I passed a mile marker six. I still had a long way to go before reaching the motorist. Reaching for the stereo, I winced as the usual station I listened to was only an ear-piercing static. Weird, I thought to myself. Reception usually stays until at least marker 20. I thought nothing of it turning off the radio and instead listening to the gravel and dirt pushed from underneath my tires. The headlights of the SUV pushed far ahead, along with the flashing lights on the roof of my patrol car, giving me a clear view of what was ahead. I didn't go too fast, I mean, after all, how far could an inoperable car really go? It'll still be there when I get there, and besides... The last thing I need is to hit an animal and ruin my car, trying to get to him in the first place. I sighed and leaned back in my seat, wishing that morning would come and I could fall asleep. The miles kept coming, passing mile marker 17, not even halfway there. If it weren't for the constant shaking and rumbling of the loose stone and rocks beneath the car, I would have easily drifted off. The road, straight as an arrow, kept going and going. And going. Wait, since when was that tree on the side of the road? I asked myself. A white birch tree, beautiful and standing tall, was always on the west side of the road. It was one of the few trees on the road. But tonight, it was on the east side. I slowed my cruiser to a stop checking the GPS on the windshield. No, I'm heading southbound, I said softly to myself. That tree was never on that side. I sat there looking at the tree. It was the same one I had my first kiss under. It was the same tree I lost my virginity under. But why was it there? Huh, must be the lack of sleep, I chuckled to myself pushing down the accelerator slightly. Although I played it off as nothing, the thought still creeped into my head. 
Why was that there? There were very few trees in this road. Heck, it was known as the rolling road for a reason. You could see for miles on end on either side. Not an obstruction in sight. The road continued on. Light still shining in front of me. I chuckled. I really need to get a decent sleep schedule, I said to myself, shaking my head to keep the sleep away. I passed mile marker 15. Wait, that can't be right. I just passed 19. I said to myself, stopping my cruiser and backing up. The sign said mile marker 20. The heck, I whispered to myself. I put my cruiser back in drive and I pulled forward, shaking my head once more at what I saw or at least what I thought I saw. I was getting worried. I know working the hours I did would at some point start taking a toll on me, but why now? I've been working third shift for over three years. I've kept myself caffeinated. There is no reason my brain would fog twice like that in one night. I looked at the clock on the dashboard. 3.03. I still had three hours left in my shaft, and I knew that as soon as I got home, I would be sleeping. Marker 22. All right, halfway there. I whispered to myself. Generally, I was a pretty stoic man, and growing up in a military family meant fear wasn't really an option, and emotions weren't either. So, when I was scared... It was answered with anger and disapproval. Sighing, I kept trudging down the road, keeping tabs on to the miles ahead, hoping the time would pass faster to clear this call and to get the heck off this road and into bed. Another mile marker sign was coming up. 29. I was getting closer, thankfully. But it didn't read mile marker 29. Rather, it was missing... The stump of the missing sign was there. The pole still stood, but the sign was missing. I pulled my cruiser to a stop and got out, shining my flashlight on it. Unit 4, Calvin County, I said with a sigh. There was no answer, which was weird. Each patrol car had a radio repeater in it, which made sure we could always be in contact with dispatch. I checked my radio. It was on and the channel was right. There's no reason I shouldn't be hearing back. Unit 4, calling County. I said again, this time in a more aggressive tone. No response once more. I pulled up my phone but saw there was no cell service. Again, this was weird, since there were towers sporadic through the fields making sure people had contact even in the most desolate locations here. Nevertheless, I took a picture of the sign, making a note in the phone to call Public Works and let them know one of their signs was gone. Probably some kids, I thought to myself. I looked at the photo, making sure it wasn't blurry or anything, but something caught my eye, and two glowing orbs were seen in the far back of the photo. I was shaking and lifted my flashlight to where the orbs were in the photo. My flashlight was powerful, shining far into the darkened night, far into the field. But I saw nothing. It was empty. 
And that's another thing, it was quiet. Very, very quiet. Even at night, you could hear the crickets, the low murmur of a resting animal, even the soft shuffle of an insect moving. It was that quiet. Tonight, the only sound was the low hum of the idling engine. I looked at the photo once more and back into the field. Maybe it was just a reflection. Maybe the sign holes produced those from the flash I reasoned with myself. Surely there is an explanation. I didn't want to stay longer than I had to. I got back into my cruiser and tried the police radio once more. Unit 4 calling county, I said nervously. I heard a crackle, better than nothing but still. No response came from the dispatchers. I switched the channel to the one that the state police used. They had a barracks in our county and they helped us on calls from time to time. Deputy Steele calling state police, any trooper on the air. I said into the radio. No response. An eerie silence once more filled the car. That's not right. I said, double checking to make sure I had the right channel. I didn't yet, no one answered. Now I was scared. But still, I had a call to respond to. Putting it back in drive, I kept moving down the road, dread filling me as I drove further away from civilization. Mile marker 33, 34, and 35. I was making good progress, and everything was normal. I chuckled to myself, knowing that I was working myself up for nothing. At night, people get scared. People fear the dark. You can't blame them for that. See, I was told it wasn't the dark that we fear, rather, what could be in the dark. But with two bright headlights and enough emergency lights to rival 30 Christmas trees, darkness, it was no match. And yet, why could I barely see the road in front of me? The previous mile marker signs came from what seemed like nowhere, whereas they should have been illuminated pretty far from my headlights, even at a good distance. I came up on mile marker 36, the sign, like the previous, appearing from what seemed like out of nowhere. But what caught me off guard this time was a crudely painted 66 right after the first one. I stopped the cruiser and got out a sign. Dang kids, haha, funny funny, I said to myself. I snapped another photo of the sign. Do I dare look at it? Do another set of orbs await me? I needed to make sure it was a good photo for my report. And thankfully, no mysterious balls of light greeted me from the screen. I sighed and put my phone back in my uniform pocket, looking at the vandalized sign. I crouched down, looking at the crudely spray-painted sign. Wait, that's... that's not spray paint. I said, looking at it closer. Was that what I think it is? Spray paint isn't that thick. It isn't that drippy. Unless it was fresh. I reached out a finger daringly, and I touched it. It didn't smell like paint, no. It smelled of iron. Unit 4 calling county, requesting assistance. I said nervously, begging, 
no praying for an answer. Alas, none would come, and I was met with yet again the silence of the night. The temperature was dropping rapidly, and even though this was quite possibly a crime scene, I had to reach that stranded motorist. If his car truly wasn't working, he could get hypothermia in there. I looked at my watch, making sure to note the time for the report. 3.03. That can't be, I said to myself, completely befuddled that no time had passed. I had crossed miles of land, miles that should have taken me at least 15 minutes to get to where I was when I had last checked the time. I shook my watch, tapping on the screen. The time, it didn't change. My phone said the same, 3.03. I stood up and quickly walked back to the patrol car, getting in and shutting the door. The dashboard clock said the same, 3.03. Slamming the cruiser in gear, I floored the pedal, the roar of the engine shredding the otherwise quiet ride. I had to make it to the motorist. I had to get the heck out of here. I wasn't sleeping anymore. Adrenaline pumped through my body and fear riddled my bones. Darkness, silence, fear. Three perfect ingredients for a horror movie. And yet, this was real. It was raw and it was happening to me. The mile signs flew by me. 37, 38, 39, 40. I was at 40. And I only had four more miles to go. At 60 miles per hour, even though the road wasn't suited for the speed, it would let me reach the car in four minutes. That's all I needed before seeing another human. Four minutes. I let out a sigh of relief. I could do this. I was close. I was going to make it. Through the darkness came a shape. A shape that was in the middle of the road. I slammed on my brakes. The wheels hurling gravel and dirt all around me while the figure came into view. My breath was arrhythmic, chest tight and heart pounding. A deer. A freaking deer. I laughed to myself, taking a deep inhale. Come on, I laughed, running a hand through my hair. You scared me. The deer was facing me his tall antlers reflecting slightly against the headlights and emergency lights of my patrol car. I blipped the siren and yet, he didn't move. He kept his stare straight at me, not moving. Alright, come on buddy, I said, turning on the siren for a few seconds. Again, he didn't move, staying still. Literally, a deer in headlights. I laughed, putting the cruiser in park and getting out. Come on, buddy, mush, go, I bellowed. He didn't move, nor did his eyes. I was a hunter. I've known plenty of deer that can spot a human hundreds of feet away. The slightest sound could scare them off. Yet the siren, nor my yelling, scared him. I took two steps forward, hand on my pistol and getting closer to it. Buddy, hey... I whispered to it, making a clicking noise with my tongue to try to get its attention. The deer stayed staring at my headlights, unmoving, unshaken. Stepping heel to toe, 
making as little noise as possible. I approached the animal. I was mere feet from it, and yet he didn't move. I reached out and I touched it. Cold, very cold. Fur was warm even after it's dead. The fur is always warm. I reached to pat its side to get it to move away. With an open hand, I gently patted the side of the deer. Go, I bellowed. He didn't move. He fell over as stiff as a board, bouncing a bit as he hit the ground. He was dead. Shaking, panting, I stepped backwards, shaking my head. What is going on? I asked myself loudly, looking around me. I looked up and knew that I had to go. The moon and stars that filled the night sky were gone. It was black, like the moon was never a thing, like stars had ceased to shine. This wasn't normal. It was a clear night only an hour ago, and the forecast was supposed to be clear. I took another look at the deer, still laying lifeless on the ground in front of my patrol car. With a shaky hand, I opened the door to my police car getting back in and shutting it. Slamming it back in drive, I floored it, moving around the dead deer and racing down the road. There has to be an explanation for that, I thought to myself. It couldn't have just died right there. My thoughts were racing, desperate to come up with a reason why a deer would have died standing up in the middle of the road. 41, okay, I'm getting closer. Three more, three more. I panted to myself, stealing myself to reality. Come on, man up. I shook myself, getting myself back into it, shaking away the fear and the worry from inside, pacing my breathing to get it normal again. Sighing in relief, I pushed my head against the headrest, still looking out ahead. Get a grip. I whispered to myself, slamming the palm of my hand on the steering wheel. Speeding down the bumpy road, I got closer and closer, the mile marker signs growing in number. Mile marker 44. I was there, but still I saw no car, no flashing lights, no sign of an accident. I slowed my speed and I reached for the radio. Unit 4, Colvin County, I said into the radio. Not to my surprise, there was no answer. Figuring that I should keep talking, maybe for my own sanity, or maybe that someone could hear me, and I just couldn't hear them. Unit 4, Colvin County, show me in the area of the accident, searching at this time. I put the radio back into its holder, shining the spotlight into the darkness around me looking to see if the car veered off the road. Other than pitch black, there was nothing. No vehicle, no dead animal, just pitch black. The SUV kept moving forward, although slow, fast enough to try to find this motorist. I wasn't sure if I was more excited to be done with this call, or just to know other humans are actually real. And with the events that had transpired so far, I was skeptical. More dirt, more darkness, and more fear. I had to be getting close now. The next mile marker sign had to be coming up. I shined the spotlight ahead of me and finally 
I found it. One car, hazard lights on in the rear, brake lights shining. I could almost cry I was so happy to have finally found it, let alone finding another human. Unit 4 calling county. Code 6 with the vehicle. I said into the radio. Why bother, I thought to myself. They ain't responding to you anyway. No response, but no bother. I put the cruiser in park and got out. I shined my flashlight at the car, stepping quietly and slowly towards it. Light gray smoke billowed from the engine block, damaged from the struck animal. Sheriff's Department, I bellowed. I stepped closer, moving my hand to my holster, pushing down the hood and putting my thumb on the release. Sheriff's Department, I bellowed again. I stepped closer, shining my flashlight into the car. There was a man laying in the front seat, head rolled back against the headrest. Sir, sir, do you need any help? I asked, taking my hand off my gun and rushed into the driver's side door. I kept my flashlight shined on him, noting his eyes were clenched shut. I took a good look at the man. His face was covered and red, his hands too. His breathing turned rapid again, taking my eyes off of him for a second to look at the front of the car. There was no deer, but dang, there was a lot of red. Too much for any animal to survive. I wanted to take a closer look, but was startled by the man in the front seat. I snapped back to him, shining the flashlight at him. Sir, I'm with the sheriff's department. Are you alright? I asked him, leaning down. The man's eyes snapped open, and I gasped. There was no pupil. No iris. White like the moon that still didn't shine. A red hand opened the door, nails scratching against the plastic of the handle. Taking a step back, my hand found my holster again, thumbing at the release. Sir, I think you need an ambulance, I said, trying to keep composed. The door swung open, and I gulped. The hand that opened the door was frail, white like a ghost. The nails were longer than daggers, pointed at the end and covered in red. I brought the light back up to the man as he stepped out, growing, growing, and growing. He towered over me, at least seven feet tall. The flashlight illuminated his body, tattered clothes stained in red and other substances I prayed weren't human. His legs shook like a newborn deer, covered only by jeans that didn't fit standing barefoot in front of me. I took another step back, hand on my gun and another on the light. Hey, you've been in an accident. I think you need to sit down, I said. His head snapped left, right, up and down, almost inhuman in how fast he made them. His neck snapped to me. These soulless eyes somehow pierced through me, shaking me to my core. Sir... I stammered, and then he smiled. The teeth. The teeth weren't human. They were sharp, sharp like shark teeth. They weren't neatly in rows, nor did they have any semblance of structure. And by God, they were stained in red and what looked to be bone and muscle. What the heck? I whispered to myself, 
He took a step forward, and I took a step back, stumbling but holding myself. Stop, I beckoned, ordering him, although my voice faltered. The man, dare I say man, but the man stopped and looked at me with those white eyes. He opened his mouth, and it unhinged like a snake. Rows and rows of more red stained teeth shined through my light, and a howl of ungodly noises pierced through the night. The thing brought its head back and cried out louder, making a noise that I'd never heard of before. I took another step back and fell over, landing hard on my back. The thing's head snapped down to me, an evil grin spreading across his mouth that was way too big for his face. One step, two steps, three steps. Stop, I said loudly. Four steps. He was getting closer. Stop, I bellowed again, but he didn't. It didn't. I unholstered my gun and pointed it at him. He didn't stop. I know that he saw my gun. He had to have. Most people would have stopped at the sight of it, but he... It, whatever the heck it was, it didn't. The thing just took another step towards me. The cracking of its bones and body made me shiver in terror. My gun was shaking in my hand, finger resting on the trigger guard. I'll shoot. Stop where you are. I bellowed, getting up on one knee. Once more, the man rolled his head back, letting out another guttural scream, making my head hurt and my ears ring. The neck of the man snapped back down. An unholy noise came through as his eyes locked onto mine. One step, this time faster, closing the distance. I put my finger on the trigger and squeezed. The gunshot echoed through the night, the sharp recoil stinging my cold hand and the hot shell bounced on the ground next to me. I saw it hit him center mass and yet... He only stumbled. He took two steps back and he chuckled. The man chuckled. I stood up now knowing that I had distance and tried to backpedal back towards my car. Another noise from him and those teeth. God, those teeth. He was now in a full sprint. I squeezed the trigger again, dropping my flashlight to get a better grip on my gun opting to turn in the flashlight mounted on it. Three, four, five, all center mass on him, and he only laughed and screamed in that noise that made my body turn cold. The man I stumbled back, looking down at his chest. There was no red from where I shot him. I could see the holes and I could see where my rounds had landed. And yet, there was nothing. Forget this, I whispered to myself finally making it back to the hood of my police car. I leaned against the ram bar while the man charged at me again, not stopping, only lulling his head back and letting out another screech. With ringing ears and two unsteady hands, I fired again and again and again, pushing him back with each round that hit his torso. The gun snapped back and I pulled the trigger again, but nothing came out. A quick look over at my gun determined, I had fired the entire magazine, all 18 rounds and yet he didn't go down. He still stood there flashing those razor sharp and red covered teeth.
I dropped the magazine, quickly slapping in a new one and releasing the slide, backpedaling towards my cruiser and getting in. Slamming the door, I put the cruiser in reverse, not daring to take my eyes off of whatever the heck was in front of me. Even through the roar of the engine, the man's screams appears through, making me wince and shut my eyes to try to dull the sound. The dirt kicked up from my cruiser clouded the sight of him, using this time to spin the cruiser around and floor the pedal, not caring the damage that I was doing to the car. I kept looking at my rear view, and the only thing I saw was the cloud of dust and the emergency lights reflecting off of it. The cruiser buckled in shock, making noises I knew weren't good for it, but I knew that I had to get out of there. Mile marker 45. Oh no, I had turned my car around. Those numbers shouldn't be going up, they should be going down. Mile marker 4666. I was shaking, panting, terrified like I've never felt before, punishing the cruiser as I sped through the night. The mirror showed nothing, only dust. I had to have lost it by now. I had to have. Mile marker, hell. Tears clouded my vision. I wiped them away quickly, trying to keep my eyes on the road. The GPS showed I was going northbound. I was going the right way to go home, and yet the landscape proved otherwise. Mile marker 40. I was going the right way. I sighed in relief, but didn't dare to slow my pace, keeping me pedal floored in the engine roaring. The deer was gone, nowhere to be seen where it laid when I came by earlier. I know that was the spot and yet, it's as if the deer had simply got up and left right after I did. Shaking my head and wiping more tears, I kept moving, passing mile markers that finally showed the right numbers. Mile marker 30. I was getting closer, free from whatever place I had just wandered into. What the heck? What the heck? I bellowed, slamming my palm onto the steering wheel. My watch lit up. It was still 3.03. Sobbing and shaking, I kept going and keeping my handgun in the passenger seat for easy access. God forbid that thing appeared again. There was the tree. The tree from earlier. And now, it was on the right side of the road. How did it just move like that? That was on the other side of the road. It can't be. Pull it together, Steel, pull it together. I said to myself, doing my best to calm down while the road kept going on and on in front of me. A light. I saw a light. A quick peek through the windshield showed the moon and stars shining bright like they were before. I was getting closer to the main road. I had to make it. The SUV buckled under the dip in the road. Items were thrown all around the cabin as the car lurched back, but it kept steady. Here we go. Here we go. We got this. I whispered to myself, reassuring myself that I would see the end of this. There it was, the asphalt road. The old sign that showed old Route 33. I made it. And as soon as the tires connected to the asphalt, I didn't dare look back, the same as I didn't dare to let my foot off the accelerator. Cars passed by, pulling over from my red and blues while I sped down the road. I let out a shaky breath, pulling into a gas station and shutting off the lights. 
pulling around back, I put the car in park, crying tears of pain and joy, knowing that I had made it back to safety. Kali, calling Unit 4. The radio called out. I sniffled, so happy to hear the voice again. Any voice, really. Go, go ahead. I stammered through the tears. Unit 4, disregard the stranded motorist call. Carlos states that he got the car running and he's all set. No officers needed. I didn't dare question it, and I didn't care to look into it. Unit 4, copy. I said through panting breaths. Copy, showing you code 4. Time of call termination, 0303. I looked at the clock. It was actually 3.03 in the morning. My eyes never faltered from the clock, staring in fear until it turned. 3.04. I sighed and put my head against the headrest. I made it. I freaking made it out. I went home and called out for the rest of the night, saying that I was sick and needed to lie down. I went home and slept, pretending that it was all a bad dream. But I promise you, it wasn't a bad dream. It was real. The bullets fired from my gun were real. The dirt and mud caked on my patrol car is real. I think, I think I may have accidentally stumbled onto the gateway to hell. I don't know how else to describe the events that occurred, or how the time just didn't seem to change until I was free of that godforsaken road. A final note to you all, having survived what I did. If you ever find yourself in Montana, don't break down an old Route 33. Never say his name on the stairs. Written by Rick the Intern. There is a rhyme about him. It goes like this. He uses the stairs to maim and claim, and he's gotten very good at it over the years. So never say his name there unless you've gone insane, and you're looking down the stairs at someone else's fears. Is it a coincidence that on paper the rhyme is shaped like stairs? Walt the Stairman. There. I even said it aloud just now. But I'm not on the stairs. At least, I don't think I am. Technically, you need more than just the name. You need memory. People at school were talking about him. I don't know which people brought it into our school, but it got around. Somebody even posted a video of themselves dancing on these stairs while saying the rhyme. They did not say his name. A couple of days after hearing about Walt, the stairman, it began to seem oddly familiar. My friend said as much too, but none of us could decide which specific memories it came from. My recovered memory of him was almost like a stairway detached from a larger house. Was it something our parents had told us to scare us? Indirectly, and to behaving on the stairs? Or was it something that we had seen in a book or on the TV years ago and had forgotten about it? 
Memories, after all, are as tricky as they are important. Here is how you summon Walt the Stairman. First, you've got to be in the stairs. Many stairs will do. It can be in a library, a hospital, or a museum. It can be in your own home. Second, think of the strongest, oldest memory that you have. Finding the Goldilocks zone of a memory can be a little difficult, because if it's so old that it's not very strong, it won't work. If it's not old enough, it won't work. This part, this step on the stairway of summoning Walt, if you will, is the most difficult. It might require some trial and error. Third, say his name. Say it loudly enough that someone a few steps up or a few steps down would hear you. If saying Walt the Stairman while on the stairs and thinking of a strong but old memory doesn't work, try it again with another memory. I've also heard it might amplify your invocation if you have some friends with you who all share the same old and strong memory. And, supposedly, if there is no one else around but you and those involved, Walt is likelier to appear. A junior at our school was betting money for anyone who would try to summon Walt at a certain derelict house not far from our school and to film it. I needed the cash, and so did two friends of mine, twin brothers who happened to share a particular memory with me. The old memory we strongly shared was of someone getting run over in our neighborhood. It had been a hit and run. We had been playing soccer outside in the front yard during the summer. Our parents had either been inside or at work. They had not been able to protect us from the sight of an old man slammed down and partially smushed into the asphalt. The car had reversed and rolled over the hump of his body before beating a hasty retreat. Lucas and Liam didn't see who was driving. I remember looking into the driver's side and seeing no one there. No one there but a shadow. Lucas and Liam didn't believe me about that. And I think my parents and the therapist I saw afterwards believed that I was either remembering things wrong or lying as an outlet. And despite my memory distortion regarding the driver, it was weird and horrific and old and strong. We agreed the memory was that way for all three of us. It didn't help that the victim was someone who had wandered miles from a retirement home into our neighborhood. I only found that out later when I was older as if he had been summoned to his death. That happened when we were in the first grade. Because of newspaper proof of the incident, we were able to get that junior at our high school to triple their money. It's no big deal. I told the twins while we were discussing the bet apart from the others. We just have to go to that abandoned house, climb partway up whatever stairs remain, and say Walt the Stairman for the camera. We don't need to remember the old man getting run over, because it's impossible for anybody to know what we were thinking. 
and nothing will happen anyway. What if we get in trouble for breaking and entering? Liam said. That house barely has a roof left, I said. No one's lived there for years. Well, what about squatters? Lucas said. What about that money that you two needed for car repairs? I countered. And besides, I said, the location might be renegotiable. We'll just have to be cautious when we get there. We were cautious enough. We told our parents that we had a group project that we had to work on after school. In a way, we were telling the truth. Besides that, as seniors, we were on a longer leash. Until about 11pm, we hung out at a movie theater to kill some time. It wouldn't do to get there too early and get spotted going into that house. All we needed was our cell phones, a name, and the capacity to go inside and climb the stairs. It was too bad that going to a certain location was a part of the bet. Otherwise, we'd have chosen any staircase. We were all nervous as the movie theater's arcade machines blinked and prattled around us. Just in case, Liam said, let's do our best to not remember that guy getting run over when we were little. Sure, I said, and just in case. Lucas agreed. We pulled up to the derelict house in the twins' ratty car a little after 11. Maybe one-third of the house's roof remained. The other two-thirds of the top were boards rising up into the liquid night like the columns of a pier. The siding was weathered. If there had been any boards over the doorway or the windows, they would have fallen down, showing gaping holes. That house was a dead thing that had never been properly buried. It was unclear how many stories it was from the outside or what style the house was supposed to have been. If any squatters lived there, they would be exposed to the elements. Liam silenced the sputtering car, and we snuck through the tall weeds with our cell phone cameras on record. Glancing around showed a half a dozen houses on that street. A few of their windows were still lit up. Old-timey music glided faintly towards us. Probably it was coming from an open window from one of those other houses. There was no breaking in involved. The doorway was a wound in the side of a hunched, decaying beast. We entered. The lights of our cell phones as we recorded any stars above us from that house, not having much of a roof, provided enough to see by. Stars. It's kind of weird that stars and stairs are close. Sometimes when I see one, I think the other. I was looking at these stars above and thinking the word stairs. I pulled my head down to take them in. These stairs were mostly intact. Strips of puckered carpet covered some of them. It kind of reminded me of moss. Maybe it was. The rails were bent at an obtuse angle, like something wide had been moved along the stairs. Some of the railing had fallen. It was two stories. The rickety stairway wound around a corner to an open hallway with adjacent rooms. 
The doors to the two rooms were in varying states of disrepair, but both had holes routed in them. They looked like inky black eyes of various sizes. I imagined myself touching one of those bedroom doors and it exploding with fat, glistening termites. Oh, we're only concerned with the stairs, I said aloud. Too bad, Lucas joked. I wanted to whip something up in the kitchen. We tested out the bottom step. The old wood protested with creaks and groans, but it did not give. Not yet, anyway. Let's only go up three steps, Liam said. Why three? Lucas said. I don't know, Liam said. It feels right. There are three of us. We'll each get on one of the first three steps and film each other. No reason to go higher than that. It made sense. We didn't want to get our ankles broken. Remember to not remember, Liam said. I couldn't help but chuckle. Even though my head was throbbing with quick stabs to the tune of my heart. That's just going to make us want to remember it more, I said. Liam climbed to the third step, easing himself up with care. A fall from the height of three steps would hardly be of concern itself. But if we came down on something broken and sharp, it could be bad either way. Lucas followed his twin brother up, and then it was my turn. I got the bottom stop. We had our cell phones in each other's faces. We chatted to ourselves and for the benefit of our audience, but mostly to stall. My voice shook and my hands were clammy. I could barely hear the twins over my breathing and heartbeat even though we were leaning distance from each other. Nothing's going to happen. We may have told each other without even saying it. We didn't say that, but one of us, I don't remember which, went ahead and hazarded these words. Walt, the Stairman. When nothing happened, the other two of us said, Walt, the Stairman. And it should have been done money in the bank but there was one thing what should have been a pebble by the wayside now that it was over and nothing had happened it wasn't a pebble it was a seed until that time there had been an ageless musty smell with some hints of animal urine but after the first of us spoke his name the wind must have shifted without us noticing and we hadn't noticed it at first. What was on that wind? It was the smell of a rotting animal. That smell had me remembering an old man that hobbled down our road. His hands wrangled the air as he labored the last measure of his life. It had me remembering the vehicle that snarled from behind and pulled him down beneath it like it was some kind of factory like trees being turned into paper. It had me remembering without realizing. I was remembering before it was too late. It was not a smell I would have encountered then, because our parents did drag us away from that old man. But whenever I saw the remains of an animal on the road and smelled its rot, I would come to associate it with that man, with that memory. I believe that the twins must have remembered too, 
whether because of that sense or because of uh, something else. Somewhere between these stairs and the starlight, an apparition appeared. It hung over us like its back was clinging to a non-existent stairwell. Eyes that were much rounder than a human's, perfect or nearly perfect circles stared down at us. The rest of its face was smashed bunches of it, recalling that hit-and-run victim from years ago. Its arms and legs seemed to be propped up and crammed into the air above us. It did not have a mouth. It didn't have a mouth until its face unfolded, and I realized it was not smashed but meant to look that way. And there were little arms and legs on the little folded up face that shared those overly round eyes. Sharp and glistening protrusions rolled the skin of its miniature arms. Walt the Stairman dropped onto these stairs with us. Wood busted beneath them. He didn't seem to mind. He rose up, blotting out the stars with his height. His elongated arms, perfect for grasping existent or non-existent stairwells, stretched beyond his crooked-looking knees. He wore a strange robe that wasn't far removed from animal fur. Was it the fur of an animal of this earth? I have no idea. And there was no way to tell for sure whether those lumps were knees. We were all paralyzed at first. Walt the Stairman picked Liam up from the third step with his larger arms and forced him down over these steps above. Walt hunched over my friend like a blacksmith over an anvil. Pressing and twisting into one of Liam's arms was shoved beneath the stair. Liam's shout was distorted as his face was pressed against moldy strands of carpet and rotting wood. His brother ran up to help, but the smaller thing on Walt's head, I think that thing was Walt's head, removed itself from Walty's stairman's body and jumped onto Lucas. I was filming and scared. There was a weight on my chest, a two-ton weight of fear. Every breath that I took was difficult. The smaller thing ripped at Lucas's face with its bladed forearms. This thing, these two things called Walt the Stairman. It was not human. Whoever had tagged the man onto the end might have done so in sick jest. Maybe it had come from Walt's own twisted, folded up brain that it shared with that smaller thing. The smaller thing herded Lucas up these stairs towards his brother. Liam was squirming, his arm still pinned beneath the stab. It herded until the free arm of the larger thing reached and grabbed. It reached and grabbed the wailing face of Lucas as the small part of Walt dived off of Lucas's shoulder like a thing attempting a high dive. The larger body of Walt reached and grabbed and hoisted Lucas into the air, one armed before slamming him down. It used Lucas like a hammer to smash his twin brother's arm. Lucas went up and down and up and down. Liam cried out as pieces of his brother began to fall on him. His pinned arm that received all that force, it was no doubt smashed. 
but Liam cried for his brother in a place beyond pain. A soft, clicking rattle of bones, what had once been Lucas, was cast aside. Liam wept while Headless Walt began groping for a piece of railing to use. When Walt's head came running after me like a bad memory, the only object that I had to defend myself with was my cell phone. I flung it at the creature. It fell back and slipped into the shadows. I ran. I pushed myself so hard in that short distance between the house and the twins' vehicle that I was sure I had pulled every muscle that I had, including my heart. Memories are tricky things. Sometimes you forget. Sometimes they get distorted. And sometimes you get an inkling of a memory you never had. Other times, you can't forget. I can't forget what the bodies of the twins sounded like as they were dragged up the stairs. A sound that haunted my backside as I turned tail and ran. It haunts me every step that I take, and for good reason. I was a coward. I don't know where Walt took them, but I can only guess it had something to do with where he came from. I have no idea what the rules are there, but I do know one simple rule. Never speak his name on the stairs. Memory can't be trusted. Beware the Antlers when traveling through the Norwegian countryside. Written by Chab1337. If you've ever traveled through the Norwegian countryside, you might have encountered the various antlers hung up in the trees by the road. There are hundreds of these large moose antlers nailed to the massive pine trees that populate the inland wilderness stretching on for miles. They're usually found hanging from the middle of the trunk, where they're in clear view of the road. Some of them are even brightly colored and sport fun patterns. Upon googling what they are supposed to represent, you'll be met with Norwegian newspaper articles likely talking about how the antlers are a part of an art installation, intended to keep drivers focused while on the road preventing them from dozing off, and all that sort of nonsense. But that's not the real reason they're there. It's what the locals will tell you anyway. My story begins on the 25th of September this year. For my girlfriend's 19th birthday, I decided that I wanted to spend the weekend with her at the college she recently had started at. We hadn't seen each other in over a month. And the long-distance relationship life proved to be surprisingly more lonely than I had initially anticipated. Since most of my close friends had also left town for studying, I was left with a feeling of loneliness that I had never felt before. An empty feeling that accompanied me everywhere that I went. Even my boxing training or playing my usual video games seldom amused me anymore. I truly felt like a shell of my former self. 
And that's exactly why I was so excited about the thought of paying my girlfriend to visit. I yearned for social interaction, and a break from my mundane life was just what I needed. And the only problem was the distance between us. To get to her, I would have had to either buy an expensive two-way plane ticket, or drive for nine hours straight through mountainous terrain on bumpy, dilapidated roads. The latter being a thought I very much didn't relish. I opened up my bank account on my phone and I checked my balance. I sighed as I realized I had no other choice than to ask for my parents' permission to borrow the family car. After what felt like hours of persuasive arguing, they gave me a hesitant go-ahead and my dad reluctantly tossed me the keys. Though initially skeptical, they probably thought getting some fresh air and interacting with people again would overall benefit me. Can't say that I disagreed. I went up the stairs to my room and excitedly called my girlfriend, informing her of the good news as I began hastily packing my bags. Before hanging up, I told her that I would be leaving tomorrow morning and that she could expect to see me around 6 o'clock the following afternoon should things go as planned. Saying it out loud filled me with dread. The longest distance I had ever driven before was to my grandparents' house across the fjord, two hours away from my home. This was a nine-hour trip, not counting rest stops and meal breaks along the way. Needless to say, my previous experiences on the road paled in comparison. I jumped in bed and groaned as my head hit the pillow. I had a long day ahead of me. The following morning, I awoke to my phone's alarm, clock cheerfully chirping away. After a few minutes of booting up my consciousness, I quickly rose to my feet and got dressed. I ran downstairs, grabbed a few energy bars from the pantry, stuffed them in my pockets and left the house in a hurry. I had no time to spare. The morning sun had already made the inside of my parents' car scorching hot. I felt as if I had entered a sauna as I sat down in the driver's seat and felt the burning leather of the steering wheel mount into my fingertips. I turned on the ignition and instantly flicked the air conditioning to its max setting. While the car began cooling off, I opened the GPS and looked for the fastest route possible to my destination. I live close to a small city in Norway called Trondheim. You've undoubtedly never heard of it. The city is located pretty far up north and lies close to the coast. Meanwhile, my girlfriend's new college is located just outside of Oslo, the country's capital. The only thing separating us was more than 500 kilometers of mountains, forests, and run-down highways. What's not to love? The GPS calculated a route that ran straight down the country as cleanly as it could. A long sigh escaped my body as I looked at the section of the display that informed me of the trip's estimated time. It read 9 hours and 32 minutes, longer than I had previously anticipated. I adjusted the mirrors, put the car in drive, and started heading down south. The first few hours of the trip flew by faster than expected. When driving, at least at the start of a long road trip, the concept of time seems to differ greatly from what we normally perceive. 
and what feels like mere minutes in the car can quickly become hours in real time. This is especially true if you are driving through the unfathomable beauty of the Norwegian landscape. The sight of vast lush valleys and towering mountains, stretching as far as the eye can see, can quickly make you lose track of time. Oceans of green and orange were painted across the most serene autumn canvas that I had ever laid my eyes upon. It was breathtaking. I had never really traveled much outside Trondheim before, and the beautiful scenery proved to be almost overwhelming. I drove past several small villages and rural communities, each sprawling with life and personality. If you've never been to Norway, or any other geographically similar country, it's honestly hard to fully describe the beauty and serenity of driving through the beautiful subalpine landscape. My road trip was nearing the three-hour mark when I decided that I needed a small break to stretch my legs, munch on some energy bars, and get some fresh air. I pulled over at a small highway rest stop by the side of the road. There were a few other cars parked here, along with a small cafe and a large electronic billboard. I exited my car and took a deep breath of the clean mountain air. It felt refreshing. I turned around to take into my surroundings when I noticed a blinking yellow light emitting from the billboard. It displayed a large yellow triangle with an exclamation point in the middle, accompanied by a piece of soul-crushing information. Highway E6 was currently undergoing maintenance a couple of kilometers further up the road. The billboard pointed out that many motorists who had intended on traveling on it would have to divert their path and take County Road 255 instead. I cursed quietly under my breath. This meant that I would now have to take a massive detour on some sketchy isolated road out in the middle of nowhere. Great, I thought. Just what I needed. This would probably extend my trip by at least an hour and a half. I got back in my car and typed in the newly acquired piece of information into my GPS. According to it, I would soon be entering a heavily wooded and secluded stretch of road. The kind of road you don't want to be on should your car begin to break down or act funny. I started my car and left the rest stop behind, continuing along Highway E6 until I encountered the large roadblock the billboard had warned me about. Next to it stood a large orange sign with an arrow on it. My eyes followed the arrow and saw that it pointed toward an exit ramp to my right. I turned my steering wheel and drove onto County Road 255. The change was immediately noticeable. This new road made the highway seem like a piece of art. If the E6 was a quiet lake on a beautiful summer's day, County Road 255 was a stormy ocean just waiting to swallow any unfortunate sailor who dared brave its massive waves. The road was full of potholes and cracked, overgrown asphalt. It looked like nobody had traveled down this path for years. Maybe nobody had. After all, I could think of a few reasons as to why anyone would ever come out here. And despite the occasional jolts of my car as I hit a pothole, I kept on driving. Massive pine trees now surrounded me on both sides, and the road had become significantly more narrow than it used to be. Thirty minutes had passed since I had entered this road, and I sat in my car listening to some old 80s pop song over the radio while chewing on a protein bar. 
The loud hum of four wheels traversing on decade-old asphalt almost began to feel soothing. That's when I first saw them. A pair of large brown antlers were nailed to a tree a couple of meters in front of me. I almost didn't register them as I zoomed past. I would have probably chalked it up to my imagination if it weren't for a second pair of antlers on a different tree, just a short distance ahead. I slowed my car to get a better look at them this time. This set of antlers sported a peculiar pattern of black stripes that ran diagonally down the pair. Across the road, my eyes laid upon yet another set of antlers. These ones were colored in a bright blue polka dot pattern. I noticed another pair. These ones were bright red in color. My car came to a full stop as I investigated these strange road markings. More and more of them seemed to come into view, each dyeing their own unique color and pattern. The forest was full of them. How strange, I thought. Must be a part of some local art installation or something. I quietly mumbled under my breath. I sat in my car for a few minutes, looking around at the various pairs of antlers that surrounded me. It was honestly kind of admirable that they managed to even bother with public art in a place like this. I mean, who would be around to appreciate it? I snapped out of my trance and resumed driving, thinking there was no use in delaying my arrival in Oslo any further. As I continued down the seemingly endless road, more and more antlers seemed to emerge from the tree line. As more of them came into view, I began questioning their authenticity. Surely, there couldn't have been this many moose in the whole county. Did they import thousands of antlers just to hang them up in a place where virtually nobody would ever come to see them? The more that I thought about it, the more something seemed a bit off. I kept on driving. As I made my way further down the road, I noticed less and less of the colored antlers. Most of the antlers passing me were now just the normal tan or brown that antlers usually came in. Occasionally, some blue or green ones would appear, but the majority of them were now just their natural color. I kept on driving. To my utter disbelief, I saw a building rising on the horizon. A bright red Circle K gas station stood in the stark contrast to the dense murky forest surrounding it. Instinctually, I checked the gas gauge in the car and noticed that I had little less than two quarters left of fuel. Though I expected more, this still wasn't a small quantity of gas, and it would take me pretty far. I hesitated for a moment. It couldn't hurt to refill now that the opportunity had arisen. I mean, who knows how long it'll be until the next time I get the chance. I certainly wouldn't want to be left stranded out here in the middle of nowhere, delaying my trip even further. The station crept closer and closer until I decided to pull over. Better safe than sorry, was the recurring thought in the back of my mind. I pulled up to one of the gas pumps and I stepped out of the car. The atmosphere of the forest hit me like a brick wall. There wasn't a single sound to be heard. No birds, no rustling of trees, and no wind. It was eerily quiet. This filled me with a sense of unease that I didn't know I was capable of feeling. It was like somewhere deep in my mind, some primal instinct kept warning me of something. 
I nearly got back in my car to keep driving, but reasoned that there was nothing to be afraid of. I told myself that I was being silly. I shook the feeling as best as I could as I grabbed the gas pump and started filling up the car. After roughly five seconds of pumping, a loud metallic buzzing sound emitted from the pump and I could feel it go slightly limp. It had stopped working. I tried tinkering with it and repeatedly pressed down on the release, but it wouldn't budge. It seemed the pump had simply run out of gas. Strange. I had never encountered this problem before. I didn't even know this could happen to begin with. I placed the pump back on its holster and made my way toward the inside of the gas station to report the problem. Just as I was about to enter, my eyes caught something a short distance to my right. It was a massive pine tree, probably predating the Vikings by the look of it. It looked ancient. The pine had a slightly more gray and worn out bark than that of the other trees, and it towered above anything I had seen in this forest thus far. But that's not what made me stop dead in my tracks. After all, I had seen large trees before. No, what sent chills down my spine was what stared back at me. Up there, situated maybe three meters off the ground, sat a large pair of brown antlers. These were different from the rest. On both sides, close to the middle, were two painted-on eyes. They were outlined by a dark crimson coloration that seemed to have seeped further down the antlers. The amount of detail in the eyes had me questioning whether or not they were real for a second. I stood and watched as they ominously stared back at me. It felt as if they were going to blink at any moment. I was finally able to divert my gaze, and I headed inside at the gas station. The inside of the station was a whole other story. I don't know how I didn't notice it from the outside. The store was completely empty. There wasn't as much as a single bag of beef jerky lining the shelves. They had been picked clean by the looks of it. Most of the fluorescent lights that illuminated the store were still on, indicating that the place still had electricity somehow. The floors were a bit dirty, and a nasty mold had started growing on the ceiling by the corner closest to the door. But other than that, the store was in pristine condition. I walked over to the counter hoping to find some answers that would shed light on this peculiar situation. But I found nothing. No signs of life. No convenient newspaper clippings that would transcribe the history of the gas station in exquisite detail. I was left dumbfounded. What had happened here? I fished my phone out of my pocket, only to quickly realize that any attempts at using it were futile. My no-service cliché, I know. I raised my phone high into the air as if it would suddenly gain full 5G coverage. Starting to feel creeped out, I quickly turned around and headed for the exit. Immediately after I left the station, the immense feeling of dread returned. This time it seemed stronger. It was still eerily quiet out and I felt as if I was being watched. The hairs on the back of my neck stood up, and I now had goosebumps all over my body. Then, out of nowhere, something broke the silence. A loud snapping of twigs could be heard coming from the forest behind me. 
To be honest, the sheer magnitude of these snap made it sound more like a tree got snapped in half rather than a couple of twigs. Without looking back, I booked it to my car and drove out of there as fast as I could, making sure to roll up any windows and to lock all the doors. I continued it down the road, hoping that I would get back to civilization relatively soon. I must have been driving for what felt like an hour, but I still couldn't shake the feeling of being watched. How long was this road supposed to be again? I should be nearing civilization any time now, but I only saw signs that would indicate otherwise. The forest seemed to grow thicker and the trees taller. I pushed my foot down on the accelerator. I didn't care if I was speeding at this point. Not like there would be anyone around to enforce traffic laws anyway. I just wanted to get out of this dang forest at all costs. A heavy overcast now loomed above, which didn't exactly help the situation. The thick clouds prevented sunlight from shining down, and the woods fell unusually dark for it only being 4 o'clock in the afternoon. As I drove, I saw more antlers stuck to the trees lining the road. Each one looked more ominous than the last. I could have sworn a few of them even had a dark and thick, viscous liquid dripping from them. I kept driving, pressing my foot harder on the accelerator. I looked down at my phone to see if I had gotten a signal. Still nothing. I swear that I only took my eyes off the road for a second, but that's all it would take for me to nearly hit whatever now laid in the middle of the road. My car came to a screeching halt as I stomped my foot down on the brakes as hard as I could nearly swerving off course in the process. The car's headlights illuminated a large furry mass that laid strewn across the road, blocking it in its entirety. It took me a second to realize what I was looking at. Dozens of dead, decaying animals formed a roadblock that looked like it came straight out of below. I couldn't tell you how many animals there were. Maybe 10, 15, 30... The mass consisted mostly of deer and moose carcasses, but I'm pretty sure that I saw a few sheep, a cow, and maybe even a horse in there as well. I did what a normal person would have done in my situation. I began freaking out. As if everything that had happened earlier wasn't creepy enough, I now had to deal with the sight of several of those animals in the road. And even worse, there was nothing I could do. The road was completely blocked. Attempting to drive past it on either side would likely result in my car getting stuck in some ditch, worsening the situation by tenfold. Once I had collected most of my nerves, I sat pondering upon what my next course of action would be. Obviously, there was no way that I wanted to step out of my car. I had seen enough horror movies to know what happens to people in these kinds of situations. I thought about driving back the way that I came from, yet again passing the gas station and continuing until I reached the highway I had initially driven on, somehow finding an alternative route to Oslo that didn't involve me getting killed by some depraved serial killer or forest monster. That thought quickly faded as I realized I wouldn't have enough fuel for the trip. I looked at the gas gauge and saw that I only had less than a quarter left of juice. This was bad. I could have sworn that I had more. I wouldn't be able to make the trip back, and getting stuck out there in the dark seemed like a worst case scenario. 
Even if I got past this roadblock, I still wasn't sure if I would have enough gas to reach civilization beyond it. Eventually, I realized that I had to take action. In here, I was a sitting duck to whoever or whatever was out there, if there was even something out there. To ease up the situation, I reasoned that this all might just be a big creepy coincidence. Apart from what sounded like a large tree snapping in half back at the gas station, I really hadn't seen any indication of life. Sinister in nature or not, I hadn't even heard the song of birds. Perhaps the forest really was abandoned. Yeah, that was probably it. I'm just being overly paranoid. The result of listening to too many scary campfire stories as a kid. I scanned the pile of animals and noticed that I might actually be able to move a few of them out of the way. Just barely enough to squeeze my car through. The right side of the blockade seemed to be comprised of smaller animals and I decided that if I could just move a few of them out of the way, it would be enough for me to hightail it out of there. I reluctantly opened my car door and stepped outside, immediately regretting my decision. The smell. Oh god, the smell. I don't know what I expected, but the smell of dozens of rotting animals didn't exactly go easy on the nose. The stench of decay made every fiber of my being want to puke. I tried suppressing my violent bowel movements as best as I could. I took a couple of deep breaths and made my way toward the pile. Halfway to the pile, I jumped as I heard the recognizable sound of wood snapping in the distance. The same sound that I had heard back at the station. I kept walking. Unsurprisingly, the closer I got to the pile, the worse the smell got. Despite this, I pushed through as I grabbed the hind legs of the deer and began dragging it out of the way. Another large snap sounded, this time way closer. I paid no attention to it and strenuously tugged at the decaying deer carcass. These things were much heavier than they looked. I managed to drag it off the road just as another loud sound could be heard, this time even closer. I recognized the distinct sound of a tree cracking, and I saw a tall pine tree fall out of the tree line and land in the road that I came from, a small distance behind my car. Whatever was responsible was closing in. My heart sank at the thought. I was suddenly filled with a sense of urgency as I grabbed another set of animal legs and desperately began tugging. A new set of twigs snapped, this time alarmingly close. I looked back to the dense woodland next to my car and saw the dark shadowy silhouette of something big moving through the underbrush. I could feel the panic start to set in. Through sheer adrenaline-infused strength, I launched the deer off the road. Just as I was about to turn around and head back to the car, I heard the sounds of heavy hooved footsteps behind me. I could feel the ground shake a little with each step. By the clacking of the sound, I could tell that whatever they belonged to now had made its way onto the asphalt. I stood frozen in fear. A large exhale slithered out of the thing behind me. The sound reminded me of a snorting horse, only more guttural and distorted. The heat of the thing's breath had reached the back of my neck, and I wanted to scream at the top of my lungs. 
My heart began beating so fast that I felt as if it would burst out of my chest cavity at any moment. I finally mustered up the courage to turn around, and my eyes were laid upon the most gruesome monstrosity I had ever seen. Have you ever had a nightmare or an experience so terrifying that you weren't even able to scream? Have you ever encountered an immense feeling of horror so excruciatingly dreadful that it overwhelmed your entire body? That's exactly how I felt, as I turned around to look at the creature that now stood between me and my ticket out of here. Partially illuminated by the headlights of the car, I could only describe the beast's shape as vaguely moose-like in appearance, putting heavy emphasis on the word vaguely. It was large, very large, at least double the height of my car, along with four hooved limbs. Two large, hairy appendages protruded from each side of the creature's torso, reaching down to the ground. They almost resembled the legs of a spider. Along its back were large ridges of spine that had seemed to protuberate through the monster's thick hide. But that wasn't even the worst part about this abomination's appearance. It was the creature's head that really hammered down the feeling of being in the presence of an eldritch monstrosity. A large set of antlers dominated its upper skull, except they weren't really antlers. They looked more like a set of massive, bony human hands, altered to mimic the antlers of a moose. Some of the gaunt fingers were even freakishly elongated to further sell the luck. The creature had no eyes, no real ones anyway. Instead, two large oval markings seemed to be painted onto its antlers. It reminded me of those fake eyes cobras and certain instincts have that are used to intimidate would-be predators. Lastly, the creature's lower jaw consisted of two long, deer-like mandibles that were equipped with several rows of long, spindly, serrated teeth. And before I had the chance to react, the bestial figure screeched and began rapidly crawling towards me. And when I say crawling, I mean it. Each of its six limbs bent down at awkward angles and began unnaturally scurrying my way. It was fast. I could hear these snapping of bones coming from the creature as it moved. Each appendage seemed to have a will of its own, dragging the rest of the monster with it. It looked unnaturally contorted. In an act of pure desperation, I ducked into the pile of animals behind me and buried myself deep in the decomposing flesh hoping that the creature would eventually lose track of me and give up. In retrospect, it probably wasn't the brightest idea, but I figured I stood no chance in outrunning it, especially not in the dense woodland. Whatever this thing was, it would be perfectly adapted for pursuit through dense underbrush, something I was not. My sanctuary didn't last for long as I saw one of its spider-like appendages strike down in the flash right next to me. I could hear guttural vocalizations escape its mouth as it began frantically searching for me. It sounded horrible. I was on the verge of tears by this point. There is no way I was going to get out of this situation alive. I felt truly doomed. Another appendage struck down beside me. It was going to find me eventually and the situation seemed hopeless. I watched in horror as the deer carcass I had been hiding under got effortlessly tossed aside by the creature. I could see it in even more detail now, 
Its dark, thick hide looked cracked and worn down, a texture very reminiscent of tree bark. It had noticed me. The beast tilted its head downwards and I could feel the artificial eyes of the antlers staring into my soul. An ear-piercing screech left its body as it raised one of its appendages and wrapped it around my foot. I noticed that the end of the spider-like leg came attached with a pair of sharp opposable claws. The claws dug into my leg and I let out a scream of excruciating pain. This was how I was going to die. The creature opened its mouth and I was presented with rows upon rows of sharp yellow teeth. In a last desperate attempt at survival, I kicked the creature's two mandibles as hard as I could with my other leg. It visibly recoiled in pain. I kicked it again, even harder this time. I could feel it loosen its grip on my foot, and I rolled over and got back on my feet. Limping towards the car, I swung open the driver's seat door and got in just in time for the creature to slam its entire body weight against the vehicle. It wasn't giving up without a fight. I slammed down on the accelerator with my foot and sped through the opening in the roadblock that I had previously cleared. I could feel the ground shake behind me as I looked in the rearview mirror and saw the massive beast in hot pursuit. I was going well over a hundred kilometers an hour by now, but my assailant only seemed to come closer and closer. This should have been impossible. How was it moving so fast? I sped up even more. I could hear the roar of the engine as it probably produced the fastest moving car in Europe at that moment. I prayed to every god imaginable as I looked to my left and saw that the galloping creature had caught up to the car and was now running beside it. It turned towards me and I could have sworn I saw a sickly and contorted smile begin to form around its mouth. I started cursing, contemplating just crashing the car into a tree so that my death would at least be swift and relatively painless. I closed my eyes and braced for the inevitable attack. Seconds, maybe even minutes had gone by before I realized. It never came. I was completely fine still driving along the road. I looked back at the rearview mirror and saw that the creature had just stopped in the middle of its tracks. It was just standing there as if it suddenly decided I wasn't worth the effort. I also noticed the strange antlers on the trees on both sides of the road. These antlers were similar to the other ones, except they seemed larger and were inscribed with weird symbols and markings. Due to the distance between us, I couldn't make out what the antlers said or depicted. The two parallel antlers almost reminded me of some sort of gate, as if it marked the border between the creature's territory and our world. Past the antlers towards my direction, the surrounding trees seemed completely normal. I was no longer surrounded by antlers, and the forest even seemed more inviting. The grotesque monster let out a bellowing roar, and I watched as it turned around and disappeared into the gloomy woodland. After a short while of driving, I was met with a big blue sign that pointed me toward Highway E6. I was relieved beyond comprehension. Eventually, the surrounding forest seemed to ease up, and after a few minutes of following the sign, I was reunited with the scenic valleys and subalpine landscapes that I had previously ventured on. I steered back onto Highway E6 and rode it until I arrived at a small but busy gas station in a small rural community. 
As I parked my car, I broke down in tears and tried to make sense of what had just happened. I guess my adrenaline must have worn off because the last thing I remembered before waking up was slamming my head down to the steering wheel and passing out. I awoke a couple of hours later to tapping on my window. Two police officers were called in when customers at the gas station had noticed a lifeless man covered in blood sitting alone in his car. I must have thought that I was dead or something. Not that I blame them, I really looked like a zombie. My clothes were all torn and red from the ordeal in the dead animal pile. I got out of my vehicle and tried explaining my situation. They brought me back to the local police station for a psychic and medical evaluation. When I gave them a statement, I described everything that had happened to me in perfect detail and tried to sound as sane as possible while doing it. At first, I couldn't tell if they believed me. I mean, who would? It was only after I gave them the location of where I had encountered the creature that they began tensing up. A heavy silence fell upon the interrogation room, and the two officers nervously exchanged looks. It was as if they knew something I didn't. I asked them about Connie Road 255 and the abandoned gas station, but they were quick to shut down any questions that I had. The official police report states that I had been in a state of shock from a local bear attack when the two officers had found me. That's how they explained what had caused the wound to my leg and why I had massive scratch marks all over my car. It was ridiculous. Everyone and their mother knows there hasn't been a reported bear sighting in the area for over a hundred years. When they eventually released me, I called up my girlfriend to let her know that I wasn't going to be arriving until tomorrow afternoon. I checked into a nearby motel and asked the receptionist if he knew anything about County Road 255 or the strange antlers that lined the road. The receptionist was an old man in his early 60s who looked like the sort of guy who would know a thing or two about the town's history. He fell silent. I asked again and I could see that my questions made him visibly uncomfortable. After a while of debating whether or not he should open his mouth, he reluctantly told me that people, especially outsiders, weren't supposed to go there. When I asked why, he quietly mumbled to me under his breath, as if not to be heard by others. The people who venture into these surrounding woods never come back out. Apparently, this had been going on for decades but had somehow never been picked up by any local or national news outlets. When I asked him why they didn't just close down the road, he told me that the town tried doing it back in the late 80s, but that it had just led to the disappearance happening closer and closer to town. As a result, they kept the road open as if to please whatever malevolent entity that called the forest its home. I tried further prying on the subject, but he refused to elaborate. After a while, I thanked him and I went up to my room. I don't know what to make of all of this. People in this town seem to know something about that forest that they aren't telling me. The police don't even want to go out there to investigate whether or not my claims hold any truth. There is something off about this entire thing. For the past few hours, I've been sitting in my motel room, transcribing my experience as best as I could while the memory is still fresh in my mind. Let my story serve as a cautionary tale. If you ever plan on traveling through the Norwegian countryside and happen to see antlers hanging from the trees by the road, 
Beware, something else might be lurking nearby. Don't make my mistake. Avoid empty grocery stores late at night. Written by, not necessarily. I realized I had run out of tomato sauce late at night when I had already cooked the pasta. It was really late and I quickly got dressed and rushed over to my car to drive to a grocery store that would be open at this hour. I did a quick Google search and found out that a grocery store not too far away from me was still open and that it would be open until midnight. I had the choice of going to this grocery store that I've never been to, which was only a 15 minute drive away, or go to my usual 24 7 hour grocery store which was 30 minutes away. Obviously, I chose the former. As I drove up to the medium sized building in the dark, silent night, my fear levels rose slightly. A deep gut instinct telling me to abandon the idea of shopping. It bothered me like an itch that desperately needed to be scratched. I disregarded all of this and I parked my car in the barren parking lot. The grocery shop was a bright light in contrast to the dark cloudy night sky. The wind caressed at my face as I walked into the grocery store. The sliding doors opened up and I was welcomed by harsh fluorescent lighting and cold tile flooring. The lighting was bright enough to light up the place pretty well, but it had that dim quality to it that gave me a light headache. It felt as if I had a dark, heavy shadow over my eyes. The slight buzz of the light made me nauseous as I walked further into the store. At this point, I hadn't seen a single soul in the shop and I was starting to get suspicious. When I first walked in and found no cashiers at their stations, it had struck me as a bit odd, but not too concerning, as I simply assumed that all the workers were on break. There was no one inside the store anyways, so what was the point of tiring out oneself by standing at the cashier station? When no one came into view, even after I had walked in the store and wandered inside for a good amount of time, that was when my stress levels started to spike. I had been wandering around aimlessly in the fruit section, trying to wait around for someone to show up and tell me where I could find the tomato sauce. But I abandoned that and decided to go to the aisles to try to find what I was looking for. Just before I was about to leave the produce section, I realized something very unsettling about it. I don't know how I managed to miss it, as I was pacing around the place. 
All the fruits were riddled with small holes. It's not like the fruits were rotting, and they were starting to break down. No, they were fresh. It seemed as if someone had gone ahead and used a large needle to carefully poke holes all over the surface of those fruits. I picked up an apple, and I turned it around in my hands. Only the exposed side had those holes. Now, this would have been less concerning if it was just that one apple that was affected by this weird sort of vandalism. But it wasn't. Every single fruit that had an exposed surface, it was riddled with these small holes, no larger in diameter than a couple millimeters. And those holes weren't sparsely dotted on the surface. They were quite concentrated, and not far from an organic sort of pattern, like the pores on skin. The needle used to poke these holes must have been really sharp to create them so close to each other without causing the collapse of the fruit itself. And then I noticed some more minor details. The metal trolleys holding the fruit and also the metal of the shelves had been scratched up. Long, fine, concentrated scratches that seemed to have been brushed on the shelving. Except the brush fibers were probably made up of sharp, metallic needles. I could have overlooked this as a design choice for the shelving, but the fact that the fruit had holes made this fit perfectly into the puzzle. I had absolutely no explanation for how the fruits had holes poked into them so organically. Surely, it would have taken even a team of people a long time to pull something like this off. I was officially freaked out, and I decided to just focus on getting my tomato sauce. My mind's response to such an unsettling occurrence was just to leave it alone and continue on with my day-to-day -day life. I crossed past the fruits area and walked into the first aisle in search of a tomato sauce. There were no signs above the aisles to tell me where each sort of item belonged. Another odd feature of the grocery store that I decided to overlook. As I walked into the first aisle, I realized once more that every single item on the shelves were completely covered in these tiny holes. The whole section of chips had the packets all poked with holes. The mystery of this grocery store was starting to run deep, and those holes everywhere brought goosebumps to my body. Frantic, hurried footsteps came from the aisle adjacent to me. I stood frozen in the middle of my aisle, exposed to whoever was about to turn the corner. To my surprise, the footsteps stopped, and instead, I heard a voice obviously coming from their aisle. It was an old lady's voice. Can you hear me? Are you in this aisle? She yelled in a frail, falling voice. A deep panic ran through her voice, and she stuttered over the same sentence several times. Yeah, yes, I'll come over to you. 
and I yelled back as I quickly ran over to the end of the aisle and I turned the corner. No, stop, don't come, she yelled in a frantic voice. It was already too late though, and as I turned the corner, I realized that she was not there anymore. In the moment I had turned the corner, she had seemingly vanished completely. I stood completely dumbfounded for a second when I heard her voice again. Please go back to your aisle. Her voice seemed to come from the aisle that I had come out of, yet it seemed to sound a little distant. I ran back to my previous aisle, and it sounded like her voice was still coming from the same aisle that I had just turned into. How could I clearly hear her voice coming from there, but I couldn't see or hear her when I made the turn? It was like she only existed in that one specific aisle, and walking out of it would make me unable to see or hear her. The only access point to her seemed to be that same aisle that I had come out of. Why can't I see you? I yelled back at her as a lot of questions went through my mind. I don't know. I can't see you either. She yelled before her voice was cut off and she started screaming. It was a scream that echoed in my head and screeched in my ears. It's coming for me. She shouted in a panic and I heard the sound of a heavy, wet sponge being pushed across the tile floor. That's when I got an idea. I frantically pushed all the items away from the shelf to make a sort of window to see into the other aisle. When I pushed everything away, I finally saw the old lady, but her face it was contorted in an expression of absolute fear and panic. She didn't even notice me as she started to slowly step back from whatever seemed to be chasing her. My heart was beating against my chest so fast it felt like my ribcage was about to shatter. The constricting grasp of fear tightened around my throat and I physically struggled to breathe. I broke myself away from staring out the window that I had created, and instead, I broke into a sprint around the corner to get into the other aisle. Yet when I got there, she had disappeared once again. I could hear the old lady's screams get cut off from the previous aisle. The old lady and whatever was chasing her had disappeared as if her presence was restricted to the aisle in particular in some unfathomable way. I had had enough of this place. I needed to get out. I ran to get out of the aisles and to return my car when someone who I assumed to be a store employee appeared out of nowhere. I stopped dead in my tracks and I stared at him. There was something wrong with his posture. 
His smile was a little too wide, and his posture, it looked as if his back had curved inwards to such an extent that his body had taken upon the shape of the bottom half of the letter S. The guy said nothing, but continued staring at me. His pupils started to expand as he stared at me and soon covered his entire eye. It was simply a deep pool of blackness, like an ocean at night. I took stumbling steps backwards and nearly tripped on myself. I finally lost control of my bladder when I realized that in the fraction of a second in which I had closed my eyes to blink, the store employee suddenly had strange pulsating black tentacles coming out of his back. They seemed to be covered in millions and millions of tiny black fibers that all ended in sharp points. All the pieces now fit together and the holes all over the grocery store, they now made sense. I quickly got back onto my feet and I ran away from the store employee. His tentacles kept on extending to chase after me, and one of them actually slapped me in the back. The impact of those thousand tiny needles quickly whipping me in the back generated an excruciating amount of pain. It felt as if my entire back had been shredded into pieces. I don't know what it was that kept me running, but the pain didn't stop me. I ran and ran until I found myself out of the grocery store and in my car. I collapsed in my car seat and fell unconscious as soon as I had locked the doors. I woke up in the morning outside of the same grocery store. The lights inside were still on, and as I looked closely, the same store employee was staring at me through the glass double doors. I booked it out of the parking lot, the fastest that I've ever done in my life. On the way home, I finally broke down from all the stress and fear that I experienced over the past 24 hours, and I had a full-blown panic attack. What concerned me the most was that my back had no marks on it, not a bruise or a scratch. It was as if that slap that I remembered so vividly had never happened. I still couldn't forget the excruciating pain that I had felt as thousands of needles broke through my skin and dug deep into it before ripping themselves out. As I struggled to analyze my back in a mirror, I suddenly felt waves of pain pass through my very backbone, and then it started to violently curve inwards, the connections between my bones began to break and snap as I screamed. Inky black tentacles with thousands of needle-like protrusions on them began to rip out of my back, and they started attacking me. I'm typing out this post as I feel those constricting tentacles puncture my body like I'm in an Iron Maiden. 
I should have just had the pasta without any tomato sauce. Thank you all for listening today. I hope you enjoyed today's lineup of stories. I'm excited to be inching ever closer to Halloween, and I'm sure the stories are only going to ramp up from here on out. I would like to extend a huge thank you to this week's sponsor, Raycon. Right now, Creepscast listeners can get 15% off the Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash mrcreeps. That's buyraycon.com slash mrcreeps for 15% off. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope you have an amazing day or night. Stay safe out there, and as always, stay creepy.